Hello and welcome to the Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Monthly Roundup. Every month, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug cell and gene therapy world and what they mean to you. Welcome to this month's special episode, focused on the first post-vaccination in-person World Orphan Drug Congress. It was based at the Gaylord Hotel, National Harbour, Maryland, in Washington. I'm Georgie Wright, and I am the Communication Executive at Partners for Access. I am joined today with my colleague, Bruce Chin. Bruce is our Senior Client Relationship Director and is based in the UK. So the World Orphan Drug Congress is a yearly conference that is organised by therapy. It is solely focused on rare disease, orphan drugs and cell and gene therapy. And the attendees work primarily within the rare disease space. From industry experts, payers, patient advocacy groups, life science market access consultancies and pharma and biotech companies. Partners for Access are gold sponsors, which included a physical booth, and our experts, Akshay Kumar and Richard Wang, presented a session on hospital exemption, along with the white paper. This year, we sent Bruce out to America to represent us. At the time, a new COVID mutation swept across the US and they were experiencing over 200,000 cases per day. Hospitals were starting to become overwhelmed and there was a risk that the conference would switch back to a virtual environment. In light of this, the US were placed on the UK red list, which in turn meant Bruce had to isolate for 10 days prior to the conference and ensure he tested negative. Terrapin also mandated that masks must be worn at all times in the conference centre and ensured social distancing took place for the duration of the conference. So welcome, Bruce, and thank you for joining me today. So we'll start off with, what was your travel like? And what were your quarantine requirements? Well, thank you, Georgie. Thank you very much for having me on board. And uh, yes, it was an interesting experience, I have to say. Traveling domestically in the U.S. had its own challenges, but internationally, it was another beast. I think with my dual passports, that was quite helpful. And plus the previous two trips I had made to the States in 2020 to support my family in California uh, also helped. In addition to having the proof of being double vaxxed, a negative COVID test within 72 hours of the flight, there is also changing rules and regulations that I had to face. Return was a bit more challenging, I will concede. Uh, we needed to look online to find a COVID test in DC after the conference with results that would be given within 24 hours, plus a passenger locator form that needed to be completed, proof of vaccination, and then the purchase of two COVID self-test kits for days two and eight back in the UK, all before my flight. And this is all something I had to do within about two hours of the flight as well. So there's also, of course, as you mentioned, Georgie, the mandatory 10-day self-isolation period uh, coming from the US, which is on the Amber list now, and that uh, actually ended uh, just a few days ago. Oh, wow. Was it quite easy to follow those guidelines and make sure you had all of your right forms completed and the correct test? Uh, what I'd actually seen is uh, a number of people who were quite confused at the airport as well. And uh, in the days leading up to my departure, I definitely needed to make sure I had a COVID test done uh, for $175 in Georgetown, in addition to uh, spending £128 for the uh, day two and eight 
test kits I had to do at the airport, it was a bit more confusing. And I think the other passengers seemed to suggest that. However, I did uh, have the officials there who were able to navigate me through. So going on to, to the conference route, this was the first in-person conference as mentioned in the introduction. How did you feel to be at a live in-person conference? Did you have any reservations about attending? And were any of the attendees that you noticed feeling a little bit apprehensive uh, and networking at this conference? I think there was a sense of relief. And for me, I felt quite energized really to be around people in person again. I think all of us had been isolated, of course, for the last 18 months, much as we have across the globe. And uh, since we're pushing two years in terms of having some sort of restraint on our social engagement, and with all the attendees involved being from the life sciences industry, we knew the precautions, there'd be some level of risk, but certainly no more than what we've been through all of last year and part of this year. I thoroughly enjoyed myself, didn't really find that we had it come to mind really when I was there. And I think seeing the people there uh, really helped bring things to the forefront and it was a good conference. And with the safety measures that Terrapin put in place, so mask wearing at all times inside the conference centre and social distancing markers, uh, separate social distancing networking areas. Did you feel safe attending? The issue of safety, funnily enough, didn't really come to mind too much uh, shortly after arrival. Yes, we were all wearing masks and uh, some people were a little more laissez-faire on that. But I think that with the Gaylord Hotel being so spacious and again, having a year and a half of practice with this, plus the fact we knew everyone there was double vaxxed and in life sciences, um, we felt quite safe. Again, everyone was masked, the meals were boxed and all separate, and uh, I think that the AV teams and those attending were very much engaged 100%. Great. And just on the attendance, Bruce, do you think the pandemic that was sweeping through America at the time had a negative effect on the amount of attendees, or do you think they, they managed quite well and they had quite a lot of attendees that, that were there in person? The numbers were undeniably down with travel restrictions and a number of the participating pharma companies and some of the sessions being curtailed. I'd say perhaps between one third to just under half of the normal attendance was there, according to the probably 10 or so people I spoke with at length uh, about the attendance itself. Understandably, fewer rare disease patients attending given the higher risks involved. And that, of course, uh, put a little bit of a damper on things. But I think the normal uh, energy levels and I think passion that comes with being part of the rare disease community uh, really helped overcome that. And I have to say that those attending, uh, we didn't really feel hindered at all. Thank you, Bruce, for discussing your travel safety and the attendance numbers at uh, the World Orphan Drug Congress. Now let's move on to the sessions. So how many sessions did you attend altogether, Bruce? I'd say between the booth and between the uh, meals and the like, I'd attended about maybe 10 to 12 sessions. And all of them I found very interesting. I found them engaging, always love the passion around rare diseases and emerging treatments for them, like the cell and gene therapy discussions. And I think it's one person said, if you're working in the world of rare disease, it's because you want to be there. And I think that passion and enthusiasm is something that I certainly get wound up by in the best possible way. And I think that could be reflected with the other attendees as well. So out of those 12 sessions that you did attend, if I can ask you maybe your top three sessions uh, and why you picked those sessions. 
Georgia, I was afraid you'd ask me that question. <laughs> I have to say it really is quite challenging given the fact I like all of them. I love the energy that went into all of them. I like the subject matter. I love the people, most importantly of all, who uh, these sessions were focused on, which of course were the patients, the families, the caregivers, and the patient advocacy groups. If I'm actually held to pick three, then uh, I think what I would start with would be one, would be the updates on clinical development for rare diseases, endpoints, real world evidence, and patient voice. This discussion highlighted challenges in rare disease populations, which included small patient populations and genotypic and phenotypic heterogeneity within the disease, uh, how they're poorly understood, their reluctance to randomize placebos, limited regulatory precedents, and difficulty incorporating the regulatory aspects that are catered more toward the larger, better known patient populations. In addressing this, they highlighted the rise of new rare disease forums and entities centered on cross-cutting rare disease issues. These have been designed to first facilitate a cooperative approach and enhance standardization to better characterize rare disease. Second, incorporate the patient perspective in clinical outcome assessments. And third, building clinical trials with stakeholder alignment in the pre-competitive space. I think that was one of the things that really struck out, uh, that really stuck out from this was just what we can actually take away from the last 18 months and what the collaboration that's taken place uh, in terms of getting the COVID vaccinations out, what can be replicated for the rare disease front. The second one I'd focus on would be the keynote panel, which was called Ensuring Access for All Rare Disease Patients. And I love the interplay and the agreement between Jason Tardio of Ovid Therapeutics and Derhane Wong Rieger from Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders. They mentioned how global trends are coming to the US too, like qualies, and how there's a joint responsibility on behalf of governments and payers. And with the manufacturers to price accordingly, this is part of the whole sustainable access we espouse here as well. The other thing that they focused on was the fact that payers need to think differently on how they assess medicines for rare disease and how to think outside the box. It's important they uh, consider not just the traditional outcomes measures, but uh, those relevant to the patients, families, and communities, which of course impact the families downstream. Current means just aren't sufficient or incorporated into the current healthcare technology process. The third one I would say uh, would be the panel discussion on commercializing advancing advanced therapies for rare diseases, payer strategy, patient finding, and lessons learned from pre-post launches. And this was done by Sean McCullough from Tasha Gene Therapies, Andy Holt from Ask Bio, and Eric David from Bridge Bio. It was initially suggested that the U.S. is more amenable to early fast development for rare disease treatments, while in Europe, the burden of disease needs to be more defined. However, more stringent payer requirements are taking place in both geographies, and this is where early engagement, stakeholder education, and increasing manufacturers' uh, lead time will be helpful. There's also the discussion on letting the patients, caregivers, and families define what success looks like in disease. The biggest gap is the reconciliation that needs to take place between what patients and caregivers, manufacturers, and payers have in terms of where treatment value is. More emphasis on patient advocacy groups and patient support was really emphasized as a need to have. Georgie, I'm going to be cheeky here, and I'm going to add a fourth one in. I never can stick to the rules, as you well know. 
And that will be the roundtable on global market and patient access, establishing country-specific rare disease policy frameworks and looking at the impact of COVID on healthcare budget. Again, that ties into the theme from not just this WODC, but also the last one as well. And this was hosted by Scott Williams from Sanofi Genzyme. In a brushstroke, this was about doing more with less and how COVID has stimulated things. How has COVID impacted matters? While it delayed some progress in critical efforts, there were areas where it was a catalyst and especially uh, helped in terms of multi-stakeholder collaboration. On that note, I think the key points really were, again, that collaboration in promoting national strategies and actions on rare disease. Secondly, how governments need to develop a full envelope of access programs for people with rare disease. Thirdly, and in line with what we do, equitable and timely access that's sustainable. Uh, fourth, education and bringing policymakers along the journey. Fifth, universal healthcare coverage that promotes full participation and inclusion in all societies. And finally, six, changing the mindset in a way that's good for countries and healthcare systems. But then the quote that he left the discussion on, which I really thought resonated strongly, was from Mother Teresa. And that was, I can do the things you cannot. You can do the things I cannot. Together, we can do great things. Thank you so much, Bruce, for your in-depth analysis. Just can I ask my final question? Out of your top three sessions, or top four sessions, actually, squeeze another one in there. Were there any key learnings? That's a great question. And this is something that I really loved about this conference and the virtual one we had back in April. And I think the first of the four points I have on here is one, COVID has changed the landscape and given us some great opportunities for rare disease treatment. The second one I'd say would be the urgency and collaboration between academic institutions, manufacturers, governments, and patient groups that were brought about by COVID needs to be replicated for rare disease. Thirdly, education between and early engagement with stakeholders is critical to enhancing patient access. These include manufacturers, payers, clinical trial experts, patient advocacy organizations, and most notably, the patients themselves. So essentially, the usual suspects. And finally, I'd say that decentralized clinical trials. This was the necessity during the pandemic but it also offers more democratic participation and greater access by lessening the need for long travel to research centers. And while something needs to be done in person, I think 2020 to 2021 have shown that much can be done remotely, and that'll actually help in terms of getting a better real picture of the rare disease patients, their families, the caregivers, and integrating all of that into the ecosystem. Thank you very much for sharing, Bruce. Thank you for listening, and please don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn for future P4A insights. And that's it for this month. For more news and analysis, go to our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and don't forget to leave a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening. See you next month.